Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings Books and Music. In today's episode, a conversation with one of Australia's most wryly funny writers. Robert Skinner arrives in Melbourne, searching for a richer life. Things begin badly and then, surprisingly, get slightly worse. Pretty soon he's sleeping rough and trying to run a literary magazine out of a dog park. His quest for meaning keeps being thwarted by endless jobs, beagles, house parties, ill-advised love affairs, camel trips, and bureaucratic entanglements. Sometimes a book catches the spirit of the times, and Skinner's new book, I'd Rather Not, is about work, escape, and that's something more we all need. To introduce Skinner and ask him about his work, here's Reading's Programming Manager, Christine Gordon. Hello everybody, my name is Christine Gordon and I help look after some of the events that happen at Readings, but I'm also fortunate enough to be able to chat to some of my very favourite authors here on the Readings podcast. I welcome each and every one of you here today. I'm talking to a, a local bloke, a friend of mine called Robert Skinner. You might have read his work already. You might have read it in the monthly. You might have read it in the best Australian essays. You might have read it in the best Australian comedy writing. But he has now produced a book of short stories, or I prefer to say musings in a way, titled I'd Rather Not. Robert Skinner from uh, one local bookseller to another. Welcome to the Readings Podcast. G'day, Chris, and hello, everyone. Robert, you and I share so many things in common, but the main one, the one that all of our listeners will be interested to know, is that we both work in a bookshop. So how's business? Pretty good. I think we've been doing, uh, maybe not better than ever, but I think lockdown was pretty good. It was pretty good, wasn't it? Uh, Robert works for, not for readings, but for another bookshop. And there is a part in his collection of stories where he talks about how much bookselling changed living through those dark, dark days of the pandemic, about how uh, you've got some terrific line in there about how it turns out the whole sort of bookselling model is a terrific idea when people come in and choose their own books rather than having the booksellers there with the list. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, we were lucky enough, I think, to be selling about the same number of books, but it took about eight times more manual labour to get into the hands of the customers. And you realise what an efficient business model it was to have people come in and get their own books. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Exchange their own ideas for something that's tangible. So tell me about how your book is going in your bookshop, because I know at Readings it's selling tremendously well. Are you hand-selling? Are you saying to customers, this is a funny bloke? This is a funny writer. You should give this one a go. I've seen people holding it and have been tempted to wander over and say, listen, I've read this 50 times. You're going to love it. I've sort of recused myself from recommending my own book. Well, we recommend it so highly. How long did it take to write a book like this? It seems to me it's a sort of a collection of thoughts that you've been gathering for quite some time. I think the whole book about seven years. Some of the stories happen quicker than others. There was one that once I'd finished, I went back and did the maths and realised that I'd been writing at a speed of one word per day. (laughs) There's taking care and then I don't know what category that falls into. I mean, I hear that often because in some ways when you're writing a book like this, which is about your own life and those around you, you have to tread a little bit more carefully. This is not pure fiction. I don't think it's cautiousness that's been making me tread carefully. You know, Dolly Parton said it takes a lot of money to make me look this cheap. And I think <laughs> it's often in the background, you know, 
it just it takes a lot to get the voice right, I think. Jokes are quite hard to write, I think. I think so too. But were you worrying about, because some of the, the stories involve some of your housemates, they involve your parents, they involve people that you started the Canary Press with, were you concerned about what they were thinking at all when you were writing some of these stories? I mean, yes, but, you know, it was a point of pride to sort of try to give people in the books the best lines. Yeah, that's right. I think you did. <laughs> we had our launch party a few weeks ago and my friend Alice pre-read the book on ebook, and then she bought the book at the launch and she hunted down everyone whose names were mentioned in the book. So she got me to sign it and then she hunted down the names of anyone who might appear in the book and she got oh. me to sign the page that they were on as well. That's gorgeous. Yeah. By the end of the night, we're getting pretty carried away and she was she was just approaching people at random. She bundled up my manager at the bookshop and she said, are you in the book? The manager sort of sweetly replied, no. And I said, well, she's there in spirit. I don't know which page she signed, but she was signed one of them. You know, if you had to read the whole book as a, as a whole, this is a story that happens to lots of creative people in that you leave one city, you leave your childhood city, Adelaide in your case, yeah. and you come to Melbourne to sort of find, I don't know, the a celebration of the written word, like-minded people, and you find out that it's really bloody tough. And I think your self-deprecating humour allies this sort of tremendous agony that it must have been for the first couple of years when you were setting up something like the Canary Press or you were just trying to get your name out there as a writer. Yeah, well, there's this big sort of easterly migration that happens from Adelaide and I guess Perth to Melbourne for for people who sort of want to be in the thick of the arts and literature. I remember when I moved to Melbourne, an American friend of mine saying that Melbourne's quite a small city. I was like, ah, you're crazy. What are you talking about? (laughs) You've come from Adelaide after all. Yeah, but then after, you know, after some years of seeing the same people at the same parties, I'm like, ah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we don't move very far once we're here, I don't think. I think that's part of it. No. Well, especially not during the lockdowns. So did the lockdown give you a chance to do more writing apart from the collecting of the books for for your bookshop? Oh, I mean, theoretically. (laughs) Theoretically, it gave a lot of us a lot more time to do a lot of things. But Did we use it? Well, you know, there's, I guess there's, you know, there's a difference between solitude, which is sort of retreating from people, and isolation, which is being cut off from people. Yeah. And there's a passage in there where you say that you wrote poetry to all your friends during lockdown. So I was sending them my favourite poems that I thought they would like. That's actually such a beautiful idea. Yes, it was. As I said, I, I ran out of steam well before the pandemic did. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't able to keep it up. You know, the idea of people being able to have so much more time to get work done. Yeah. It was interesting. You know, I think that you also realise how important human connection is to even wanting to make work. Yeah. If someone dropped you on Pluto and then abandoned you there, I don't think your first thought would be, well, I'll finally finish this novel. (laughs) That's right. Or, uh, you know, I'll get to read Anna Karenina. You You know, you need solitude to do these things, but you also need to be part of humanity in the world, otherwise it sort of doesn't make sense. Well, don't they say that actually the more connections that you have, the longer you live? Robert, I just loved reading some of your stories and I did laugh out loud several times, but I also was very struck by a very poignant tone that you had particularly in relation to the relationship that you had with your parents when you went away on a holiday with them on this sort of camel, this insane camel trip, which to me sounds 
completely horrific. But for the sake of our listeners, can you just give us a bit of a view of that story and why it was that you then found yourself in the middle of the desert with your parents and some camels? Well, so I've got a um, we've got sort of a, a remote cousin called Robin and her partner Don, sort of an old Pamelier bushman, and they invited my parents on this camel trek. My mum is German. She loved the idea of being able to walk through the sort of Australian country. And my dad was pretty interested in seeing, you know, he's sort of an avid bird watcher and but also being with a sort of a, a good bushman. And I came along. My brothers, I, I guess they had better things to do, um, <laughs> but I did not. Yeah, so we, we ended up on this 10-day camel trek which I hadn't been paying much attention to until shortly before departure. I thought it would be riding camels. Turned out very briefly, found out a few days before that we were supposed to be walking next to the camels. It was, it was, it was quite a lovely trip, actually, except my parents were having a horrid time. You know, they weren't sleeping well. It was cold. And, and my dad, who's something of an introvert, is, you know, there was just sort of no getting away from 14 people on the track. There you are in one of the most isolated landscapes in the world and there's no escaping the people. Yeah, correct. You could you could dawdle or you could sort of stride out in front. But um yeah, apart from that, no. <laughs> I thought that the way that you talked about your parents and and in particular your father because there's another story that you have later on about fixing a car with with your dad and as a reader I experienced bit of love for for the way that you talked about them, the way that you seem to respect their opinions and the way that you talked about their relationship. And I just realised that you don't read about that so often anymore with people of of our age, people just saying, actually, my parents are pretty good, you know, and enough that I would go away with them or enough that I could go and ask advice. And I thought, even though your stories are funny, I just really love this uh, ability that you've had to have this arc between poignancy and uh, humour. Was that on purpose? I mean, obviously it was on purpose or you're just writing your own kind of experience of those times? I guess a lot of families that you see portrayed are dysfunctional ones. Yeah. I guess there's a lot of comedy that comes from that. But I sort of rely on my parents on each one for different things. But, I know you know, you mentioned my dad. He's always been a very good at calming both me and my mum down. <laughs> I think we're both we're both prone to have a sort of railing hysteria <laughs> against various structures or institutions. And he is very he is very good at, you know, this sort of calming pragmatism. So, you know, I still call him I I was I think you were talking about the chapter where I was calling him up when I talk about various things I'd accidentally pulled apart on the car. And yeah, you know, he's not an engineer, but he's a fixer. He's always been really good at fixing things. And so he's bring this wonderful perspective. Yeah. And my mum, I mean, one of my mum's great qualities is that she absolutely loves it when things go wrong. There is, <laughs> she is a source of wild and cackling amusement to her when things just go to absolutely pear-shaped. Yeah. That's fantastic. You get it. You've got that. You've absolutely got that. That's where it's all come from, I can see. Hey, do, would you mind reading a little bit just so that our listeners can get the tone of this book? You've been compared to a whole lot of people like David Sedaris and 
that everyone says how funny you are, but it's it's this kind of laconic tone that you have that I want our listeners to be able to hear so that when they're reading the book, they can hear your voice in it because I was fortunate enough to have met you before I read this book so I could hear you saying these stories and it really did add so much to the joy of reading your work. Uh, It's from Chapter 1, which is called War and Peace. I retired when I was 28 years old but ran out of money the same afternoon, so I caught a bus to the Dole office. My feeling about unemployment was someone's got to do it. Why not me? The pay was lousy, but I'd heard the hours were good. I'd been working for the past 16 years, driving buses, washing dishes, picking grapes, packing boxes, building exhibitions, and once digging the same trench for three days before someone told me I was digging in the wrong direction. Subconsciously, I think I'd started digging for home. I was fed up with a whole racket. At the Centrelink office, I learned that it was no longer called the doll. Some overpaid marketing agency had rebranded it Newstart. The walls were covered with inspirational posters. When opportunity knocks, open the door alongside more practical advice, telling us not to drink alcohol before job interviews. Fake nails clacked away at keyboards. Someone called my name and I followed him into a small room. I hadn't even sat down before he started trying to sign me up for forklift driving jobs on the other side of town. Whoa, I said, this isn't the kind of new start I had in mind at all. I had only just moved to Melbourne. It was a place filled with magic and possibility. I wanted to have great love affairs. I wanted to read Russian novels. What I didn't want was a pesky job, but try telling them that to your doll officer. Listen, I said, our economy seems to rely on a 5% unemployment rate. Can I just be one of those 5% for a while? The long answer was no. People, I found, want you to be busy. They don't require you to contribute anything meaningful. Otherwise, how do you explain professions like consulting? They just want you to be busy. Genghis Khan could move into your street and people would say, well, at least he's working. Thank you so much for that couple of pages there. And you'll get an idea, listeners, of just how clever Robert is with the way that he can bring some of the great themes of our literature in the past with different characters into his own everyday musings. Your book goes on to discuss some of those jobs that you've had. When you're reflecting on your sort of collection of jobs that you portray in I'd Rather Not in your book, what would be your most favourite time? Was it when you were editing the short story collection? Was it when you were driving from one place to another or taking a tour out into the middle of Australia? What is your favourite job that you've ever had? Apart from book selling, of course. Probably the favourite job wasn't even mentioned in the book. A very Melbourne job of being a bicycle valet. No way. Yeah, so we would go to festivals and events and park people's bikes for them. They're push bikes? Correct, yeah. Sure, it's only in some parts of Melbourne. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it came to somewhat of an abrupt end when I was sort of knocked over by a circus tent, sort of a gazebo that had been picked up by high winds. Also a very Melbourne fashion, you know, big. Yeah. Um, and so I just remember this big foot sort of spiralling towards me. The impending tent came knocked in the ribs. I think that this is going to be in volume two. Is there a volume two coming up? Uh, not yet. No, 
But, you know, to answer your question, I think the moments of those jobs that I liked were always the parts where I felt like there was a group of you working towards some shared goal, quixotic vision or... Of course, it's the team. Congratulations. I think that your book covers so many topics, all of them told with heartwarming humour, which seems like a, a bit loosely, but in this case, it really is. Like you seem to have captured everything that it is good and right about living here in Australia without causing any harm. So congratulations on that because I think that is a tightrope that we all walk. Robert Skinner, you've managed to just do it so elegantly, I believe. I'd Rather Not is available in all of your good bookshops, uh, in particular at Readings. It's published by Black Ink. I'll have, give you the final sort of say here, Robert, in our time together. If you were going to be exploring a second book, what books would you turn to for inspiration? A longhand way of saying, what are you reading right now? I've been reading a lot of Ursula Le Guin in the last year, and I just finished another Milan Kundera book. Oh, in, in honour. Uh, well, actually, I was, it was, I was reading Immortality, but then, you know, I would try to tell, it sort of felt churlish to insist that I was already reading it when he died. So now I just tell him I'm, yeah, exactly, I'm reading it in honour. Congratulations. It's an it's extraordinary first debut short collection stories and I'm so pleased to have you on the Readings podcast and we are delighted with the, your success. It's always terrific to have a Melbourne author take off like you are and I look forward to seeing you really soon. Thank you for your time. Robert Skinner's I'd Rather Not is available from all Readings stores and from our website where you can stream previous episodes of the Readings podcast. You'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners and pay earnest respects to Elders past, present, and those to come. Thank you.